Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. And so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and deciding the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let's pray. Father, we are your people because you have called us to be your people. We are your people because you have chosen us out of this world, rescued us from our darkness, and given us eyes to see, and you have given us rest. Rest from the guilt of our sins. And yet we are so tired often. We are a tired people. We tire still in struggling with our sin. We tire from circumstances. We tire from difficulties and hardships and obstacles. We tire from persecutions. There are so many things in this broken world that exhaust us. And we are in need of your rest. And so we ask and so we pray at your throne again this morning that you would give us eyes to see the rest that we have. And Jesus, rest in his gospel, rest in worship. And how we are to enter into it and enjoy it even now. We ask that you would do these things for us, for your glory. We ask these things in the name of the Son and by the Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. It had been going on for a while, the little girl thought to herself. And the land which was supposed to be the most fruitful on earth was showing all the scars. The great river had been turned to blood. Frogs and gnats and flies had swarmed all over the land, embedded themselves in people's hair and noses and found every nook and cranny in their houses. The fruit of this year's crops were lying dead and dried up and broken in all the fields because of hail and fire and hordes of insects. 
And then after more weeks of dead cattle and darkness and painful sores covering the bodies of all the Egyptian slave masters that she knew, her family's God brought one more unspeakable judgment upon the enemies of her people. It had been the most frightful night of the little girl's life as she huddled in the darkness of her house with her family still smelling the fresh lamb's blood dripping down the sides of the doorposts. There was no sleep that night. The cries and the screams of grieving Egyptian mothers over their lifeless dead firstborns and the sounds of packing and preparation in the Israelite camps were too loud for sleep. The next day, the entire Israelite nation set out as a great mass of humanity into the desert, leaving the most powerful cities in the world behind them and devastated. And they were never to return. And as amazed as the little Hebrew girl had been at the strength of her God's miracles, nothing had prepared her for the next event. An unseen force divides the sea in front of her, holding back two walls of water which are towering over her on either side. And she and her family run across a dry seabed all the way to the other side. They're moving as fast as they can from charging chariots of the Egyptians who are chasing them. And then after reaching the other side, the little girl's God zips up the sea like a jacket with tons of water crushing the Egyptian soldiers and saving the Israelite nation. The next many months would be full of even more wonders. God's fiery and thunderous presence on Mount Sinai where Moses received the law. The little girl joining her brothers and sisters and friends and splashing their sandy feet in a river of water that's flowing out of a boulder in the desert. The surprise every morning of gathering sweet-tasting food off the ground that no one could seem to describe, but seemed to come in such great quantities that everyone had enough. And after walking through deserts where food and water spring out of dead places, and fighting off and defeating scary nations who spoke unknown languages... After watching her family's God provide for them at every turn and at every unexpected moment, the little girl and her people come right up to the brink of all they've been hoping for since the days of some really famous but long-gone guy named Abraham. They come up to the promised land, flowing with milk and honey. It's so green as to make you forget the desert that you have always known. It smells so fertile with flowers and fruits and laughing brooks. There is pasture land for every animal and for growing unheard of numbers of cattle and sheep. The little girl packs her things, ready to break camp the next morning, remembering a similar feeling the night of the Passover in Egypt. But when she wakes up the next morning, there is no joy. No celebration. No orders to march towards the green landscape to the north. 
And the next thing she knows, for some odd reason, that all the grown-ups are too embarrassed to explain, and none of the older children seem to understand, she is told to take down her tent, pack up her things, help feed the animals, and then to follow the rest of her tribe as they, beginning, as they begin to walk, not north, but south from where they had come. Back into the harsh desert where sand promises to sting her face with hard-driven winds for another 40 years. Her grandparents and her parents would die in that desert before that little girl would come back to the promised land as a full-grown woman with children and probably grandchildren of her own. Can you imagine the sense of loss? The sense of loss would be only deepened because of all of the abundance and goodness and blessing you had seen God provide in His miraculous redemption up to that point. The loss would only be deepened by the anticipation built on the foundation of centuries of promises waiting to be fulfilled. And it's this story, this sense of loss that the writer to the Hebrews wants his audience to feel and think about. Because they are right here in Hebrews chapter 4 at this moment in their their collective spiritual life as a church. They're at the same crossroads. They're at the cusp of entering not the promised land, not, not a mere shadow but the promised land that all the other promised lands have merely been pointing to as road signs. Christ's new kingdom in heaven and on a new earth. And the author of Hebrews is afraid that this church will fail to enter it just like the Exodus generation. In our passage this morning, the writer begins by pointing to the shadows of rest promised by God to His people in the Old Testament. Rest which some of His people failed to enter. And He uses a few comparisons to make His point. First, He he makes clear in verses 1 and 2 that God has only ever had one people and that the people of the Old Covenant were saved from judgment from their sin by God's grace through faith and God's good news promises, just as His new covenant people, the church, are also saved by faith in His promises. Secondly, the writer points out that just as rest was offered to the old covenant people, so also is rest offered to Christians. So so there wasn't a rest for them, and, and now a different rest for the church. Instead, the Old Testament contains shadows, contains images, pictures of God's rest that point to the ultimate fulfillment of all those pictures. No longer in shadows, but in living color which has been brought to light in the coming of Christ. By continuing to draw off of Psalm 95 as he did in Hebrews chapter 3, and then also quoting from Genesis 2, the writer seeks to show in verses 3 through 5 how the rest offered to the Old Covenant people had always been available to them. Because it was God's very own rest being offered to them. 
God wasn't just offering to give the Exodus generation rest from their wandering in the promised land, but inviting them to share in the rest that He Himself had been enjoying since His completion of creation. And to make sure His audience didn't interpret their Old Testament too literally, the writer to the Hebrews again clarifies in verse 8 what he means by referring to this invitation to divine rest. He says that it wasn't fulfilled under Joshua when the Israelites entered the promised land. Because even the promised land was to be a shadow, it was to be a picture, a geographical sign of a greater future rest. Indeed, when David wrote Psalm 95, which the writer of the Hebrews has has been interpreting and expositing in Hebrews 3 and 4, David was still urging people to enter the rest of God, people who had been already in the promised land for 400 years. And the writer of the Hebrews even goes so far as to make the point in verse 9 that the Sabbath command, the Sabbath rest, is also a shadow, a picture pointing to this ultimate rest which still remains for us to enter. Whatever this ultimate rest is, it can't be completely fulfilled by living in Palestine, by having a Davidic king or even David himself on the throne, or even by taking one day in seven to cease from work and to worship. No. The writer of the Hebrews is clear. However you define this rest, it must include the absolutely essential idea that it is God's own rest we are invited into. Not a shadow of it. Not a picture of it. But the real thing. And so what is this rest? And how are the people of Moses' day and Joshua's day and David's day and now this largely Jewish New Testament church supposed to understand it and enter into it? Well, I think with verses 1 through 9 as a backdrop, I think that verse 10 tells us what this rest is. And verses 2 and 3 tell us how we must enter it and enjoy it. The rest promised here is the rest that we will ultimately have with God after the resurrection of our bodies. After the Lord Jesus returns to conquer the powers of sin and death and Satan, the evil tyrant who uses those powers. It's a rest that we will only ultimately, finally, in the fullest sense, possess when the only tears that stream down our face are tears of joy when pain and loss are no longer memories. This rest that still remains for all of God's people to enter is a rest from all the hardships and all the sufferings and persecutions like those that the Hebrew Christians are facing here. A rest from all the obstacles of the Christian life. And I don't have to tell any of you But we are still waiting for it to come in its fullness. We're still waiting. But I do need to remind myself and you that according to the gospel of Jesus before us in this passage, we are supposed to be tasting some of that future rest now. 
In fact, this was the burden of the writer to the Hebrews as well. He's afraid, as he says in verse 1, and he wanted his audience to catch some of this healthy fear. He's afraid that, that because he's afraid because they were showing signs of walking away from the gospel rest offered to them, walking away from the Christian faith altogether. Theologians call this apostasy. Apostasy. After the Greek word apostani, which is translated falling away or to fall away in Hebrews 3 verse 12 from last week. As in chapter 3 from Colin's sermon last week, it's once again important for us here to consider in chapter 4 that the warning of this passage is directed against not just any sin, but the disobedience, as he calls it in verse 11, of apostasy. The perseverance called for in this passage is one of persevering in saving faith, which is what verses 2 and 3 tell us about how we must enjoy this promised rest. We enjoy it by faith. And this tells us something about doctrine and ethics. In God's view, any line that we try to draw between living a faithful life doctrinally, with our confession, our faith, and a faithful life ethically, over here with morals, it's purely an arbitrary line. The writer of the Hebrews is calling for his people not just to assent to certain facts about Jesus, but to hold on to their saving doctrine by continuing in their hope in the gospel and this persecution and suffering. To leave this faith, he calls disobedience in verse 11. It's called having an evil and unbelieving heart in chapter 3, verse 12. To leave gospel doctrine is immoral. It is unethical in God's sight, just as much as sexual impurity or stealing or murder. In fact, apostasy is even greater than these other sins because it is a sin that consciously is not looking to the cross anymore. The adulterer may know where to go for repentance and forgiveness and restoration, and so also may the thief or the murderer, as King David, who committed actually all three of these sins, understood and he sought forgiveness in Psalm 51. But the apostate is going out of his or her way to remove the cross and resurrection of Jesus from their sight. They're deliberately choosing to work off of a map that no longer has the road to the cross on it anymore. In the year 1519, the Spanish explorer and infamous conquistador Hernando Cortez, he led a mutiny against his superior, the governor of Cuba. And against orders, Cortez led a landing party of soldiers to the east coast of Mexico. And when he got there, Cortez had his men burn their ships 
so that no idea of going back would ever enter their minds again. We're here, and we're not leaving. It was about as full of a commitment to mutiny as a person could make in the early 16th century. It was a declaration that going back and making peace with the governor would never be an option. And this is what the apostate is doing with the gospel in his or her heart. But I want to say, I want to say before we move on and look at the rest of the passage, because I know that there are many of us who have friends and even family members who are walking this path right now or who are threatening to. Let me say that even though Even though the apostate is doing this with the gospel, God does not always do this with the apostate. He's not limited by the choices and the desires of those who fall away. And in fact, he often shows himself to delight in chasing down prodigal sons and daughters that have burned their ships And he delights in swimming rivers and oceans to bring them home anyway. And so we have every reason to continue to hope and pray for apostates. But because of the danger of apostasy, the author says in verse 11, 11, Let us therefore strive, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. How were they striving of faith? Faith in what? Faith in God's promises. Faith in God's word to us in the gospel. And all that this gospel implies for our being declared righteous for God, before God. What the gospel implies for our growth in holiness and for our sanctification. And what the gospel implies for our rest and worship. The writer of the Hebrews refers to these powerful promises as the Word of God. And he refers to the Word of God as the basis for his warning and exhortation in verses 11 and 12. Excuse me, 12 and 13. 12 and 13. Very well-known passages for a lot of us. His argument is that the Word of God which fell on the disobedience of those in the wilderness during the Exodus generation, this is the same Word of God with which we have to do. It is living, it is effective, and self-fulfilling. It doesn't just have the power to warn. It has the power to bring about what it warns about. It is two-edged in the sense that it brings blessing and judgment simultaneously as it goes out, depending on the response of the hearers. As God says in Isaiah 55, His word never fails to accomplish His purpose. It never returns to Him empty or apologizing for weakness and impotence. His word always brings about His will, either to raise up and bless or to bring down and destroy. His spoken word creates, sustains, it saves, and it judges all of which are ideas and qualities attributed to Jesus, which is why the Apostle John calls him the Word, the Logos of God in chapter 1 of his Gospel. 
The metaphor of the word of God being sharper than any two-edged sword and its ability to divide soul from spirit and joints from marrow, it shouldn't be pressed too far to mean anything other than the word of God's ability to reveal the thoughts and the motives and the intentions of our hearts, even those that are hidden to us, and there are a great many of them. The 4th century church father, John Chrysostom, He mentions that this imagery is used to picture a hunter that is cleaning his recently killed prey. Skin taken from flesh. All the inward parts taken out and laid out. And as hard as that image may be for a lot of us non-hunters to think about, that is what the Word of God does for us. It takes our inward parts, our inward thoughts, Intentions, motivations, desires, plans, our self-deceptions, our inner arguments and self-justifications. And it lays them out before us so that we can see them, so that we might repent. So that we might repent and go into gospel rest by placing our faith in Christ. It is work. It is striving, but it is a work of faith. It is a striving not to accrue merit before God, but a striving to remind ourselves that there is no merit we can't attain, and there is no merit that we have to attain, for it has been won in Jesus, and it has been given to us in Jesus. David Chapman, who's a New Testament scholar at Covenant Theological Seminary, seminary in St. Louis, he says that, God's rest centered upon recognizing that his work of creation was now completed. And Christians enter into this rest through recognizing that Christ's work of redeeming them from sin has also been completed. But while we must strive to enter this rest of faith, we also recognize that this rest offers to us even more than assurance that we belong to Christ. It offers us enjoyment of Christ and worship. And this view of gospel rest, it challenges a lot of our usual notions of what rest can mean for us. Here we are. I mean, many of us have finished the school year and some of us Maybe not quite, but we're real close. So close we can smell it. And for many of us, rightly so, summer brings to mind the idea of rest. And there is great good and benefit to getting away from busyness and the normal rat race of urban life and taking a vacation and sleeping in and eating whatever you want and having little to no schedule. But we shouldn't confuse that with gospel rest. Gospel rest is not primarily the absence of activity, either physically or spiritually. It is not passivity. It is not a break. It doesn't mean a vacation from work or a vacation from school And it especially doesn't mean a vacation from church. As though rest can be found in vacation from God. 
a getaway from the place where heaven kisses earth through the preached scriptures and the comforting assurance-building sacraments. The fact that we are told to strive for rest in verse 11 means it can't be passivity, either for our bodies or for our relationships with God through Christ. And we're fooling ourselves if we think our souls will be refreshed merely by changing our schedules and our environment and boosting our entertainment level alone. These things can assist gospel rest, but gospel rest doesn't need them at all to make you restful. But neither is gospel rest found in activity. It's not found in the busyness of social activism, of Christian ministry, of pouring yourself out for others. It's not found there either. God gives you rest. Ministry doesn't give it. It requires that you already have it. If you're to do it for any length of time and if you're to do it well. Gospel rest is not found through sacrificial ministry, but it is meant to be found in the midst of sacrificial ministry as a fuel for sacrificial ministry. Tyler Ozan reminded me this week in a wonderful conversation that I had with him that gospel rest is not found in pragmatism either. By seeing our efforts work, by seeing proof that validates our vocational efforts, our marital efforts, our parenting efforts, our ministry efforts. Gospel rest is not found even by seeing God show up in the midst of our hardship the way we expect Him to. Gospel rest is not God showing up to relieve us, to deliver us from a difficult circumstance so that we don't need faith anymore. Gospel rest is not the absence of faith because now we have certainty about God's promises. Instead, as we've seen already, gospel rest is all about faith, not its absence. It's about a faith that perseveres to believe God more than we believe ourselves and our circumstances. Are your children as absolutely gaga over the movie Frozen as my daughter is? It's a high bar. If you've seen the movie, then you know about the character Elsa, the eldest sister who has magical powers that she can't control very well. And after hurting too many people, she finally decides the right thing to do is to run into the mountains and live by herself in isolation. The very popular song, Let It Go, that every American feels compelled to video themselves singing so they can post it on YouTube, is so often misused and re-sung out of context from what it really originally means in the movie. 
Elsa wants freedom from having to hide her powers and pretend that she's normal. And she sings this song at the point in the movie when she believes she's finally found this freedom in the mountains. Only it's at the moment of her greatest isolation, her greatest loneliness, her greatest rejection from others. It's no freedom at all. It's just a more lonely prison. And the movie creators knew this and intended this. But those who often re-sing the song and post it all over the internet, I'm not sure, always seem to get that that's the point of the song. And this is what we do with rest. Often when we think we have found it, and we celebrate and sing songs in our hearts about it, we find it to be no rest at all. By tethering ourselves to an idol and calling it rest, we only make our isolation and our imprisonment to sin worse. Vacationing in idolatry is very tiring. The gospel rest... Gospel rest comes through faith. And at its heart, Christian rest is worship. It's worship. A person of rest, in this sense, is a person of worship. And that worship, it's not just a reflection, a reaction to rest, a response to the gospel, although it's certainly that. But it is also a means to rest. Worship isn't just a response to having been given rest already. Worship is one of the means to rest. For example, abandoning yourself to the meditation and contemplation of God and His promises and blessings through solid lyrics and music interlaced with prayers and thanksgiving to God, brings gospel rest to your soul like no other. In worship, we move in faith by saying, I know my circumstances are painful. I know my husband or wife or children are very concerning to me right now. I know that I haven't had enough sleep in the last month. I know that I'm used to running to this source of entertainment, this source of buying more stuff, this source of food and drink, or this source of sexual pleasure, or this source of working on how I'm to look in front of other people in order to escape and make myself numb to it all. But instead... I am going to meditate on God's promises to me in Jesus, and I'm going to trust that as I enter into worship, He will meet me here. He will meet me here with what He knows I need, even if it doesn't seem to me to be what I need. That's worship. And it's in worship and through worship, as we center ourselves on the truths of the gospel in worship, that rest comes. I mean, isn't this what the Israelites were being asked to do? 
I mean, sure, the giants in Canaan were scary. Sure, the walled, fortressed cities in the land of promise were many. And at that point, the question to them was, are you going to trust yourselves, your sight, your reason, your past experiences? Are you going to trust God to meet you at your point of need even when he does it his way and in his timing instead of your way. And instead of sending out more reconnaissance parties, instead of taking more opinion polls, they should have stopped right there and just worshipped. They should have had a worship service centered on God and his character and his promises through the Messiah. You know what? I think David knew this. I think King David knew this. Psalm 95, which has been the primary Old Testament text for the writer to the Hebrews in our last two chapters, last week and this week's. It doesn't start out with the words of warning. Do not harden your hearts. It doesn't start out with the words of judgment. They shall not enter my rest. You know how it begins? With worship. We read it earlier together in our liturgy. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the sheep of His hand. Close your bulletin and look at the front cover. Look down at the verse from Matthew 11 down at the bottom. This morning, church, Jesus says to you, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.